You know, back in the old days, you know, there were two normal political parties, two coalitions that were adversaries, had a certain different set of gravity to them. And they were going to be, you know, arguing over where to take the country. That has declined enormously over the last 40, 50, 60 years. And now we're living in an age, oh boy, uh, how are we going to define it? It's an age of dissolution. It's an age of not just polarization, but it's of an abnormality. I think it's unlike anything actually we've seen before in American politics. We won't know what age it will be until it's resolved. We seem not to be informed with the contest over real ideas, but it's a contest over fake ideas. It's a contest over illusion rather than over fact. Facts, John Adams once observed, are stubborn things. As we've learned in recent years in America, however, they're not stubborn enough. One of our two major political parties has decided that fantasy and conspiratorial thinking are preferable to the self-evident truths that ought to mark the channels of our common life. So an election isn't just lost, it was stolen. A president who proposes a larger role for government isn't acting in an old American tradition. He's a radical socialist. Reports of intelligence services on foreign efforts to undermine our democracy aren't real. They're deep state fakes. Please join me, John Meacham, on this five-episode historical journey into the origins and impacts of American conservatism's flight from reality to a politics that's got more in common with reality TV than with the workings of a healthy republic. This is Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. It was October 1964, not quite a year after the shock of Dallas. President Kennedy has been shot in Dallas, Texas. He was shot while he was touring town with Governor Connolly in the famous bubble car. The bubble was down. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Lyndon Johnson had stepped into the breach with force. At one level, America seemed sound, prosperous, secure, united. Trust in government was at an all-time high, 77%. Johnson had passed a civil rights bill over entrenched opposition from his own party, then dominated by white Southern Democrats. He had launched an unironically named Great Society, based not least on John F. Kennedy's assertion that history had reached a point where human control over reality was not only conceivable, but likely. Our problems are man-made. 
Therefore, they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. In announcing the Great Society at the University of Michigan's commencement in 1964, President Johnson proclaimed, Within your lifetime, powerful forces already loosed will take us toward a way of life beyond the realm of our experience, almost beyond the bounds of our imagination. Far better or far worse, your generation has been appointed by history to deal with those problems and to lead America toward a new age. You have the chance never before afforded to any people in any age. You can help build a society where the demands of morality and the needs of the spirit can be realized in the life of the nation. It was a sacred charge, one undertaken with the confidence that the nation that had won World War II now stood strong against the Soviets, had built a great middle class, had made some strides on racial justice, and was on the way to conquering space, could in fact utilize human reason to fuel human progress. Kennedy had foreshadowed the work in his inaugural address. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. This series is not an ode to lost liberal glories. One of the most memorable moments of the 1964 campaign belonged not to President Johnson, nor to Senator Barry Goldwater, the Republican nominee, but to a movie and television star named Ronald Reagan. Reagan had spent the 1950s as a spokesman for General Electric and as host of the company's GE Theater, a staple of Sunday night viewing in the new age of television. On long train rides, he disliked flying in those years, Reagan had immersed himself in classical conservative texts and in contemporary accounts of the state of America. Well, by the standards of our own time, Ronald Reagan was a scholarly intellectual who had read a lot of books, who had fairly sophisticated ideas about conservatism and big government. This is Michael Beschloss, a historian and the author of nine books on the American presidency. So when Reagan in 1962 began to talk seriously about the dangers of big government, the dangers of progressivism, this was not just coming from the gut you know, I don't like these people and we're going to own the liberals. It was, this is the best course for our country. I've thought about it a lot. I used to be a new dealer. And let me share with you why I no longer feel that way. And so on Tuesday, October 27th, 1964, 
in a half-hour broadcast on Goldwater's behalf. Reagan issued a clarion call for a conservative approach to the problems of the 60s. And in his speech, he depended, almost numbingly, on facts and figures. No nation in history has ever survived a tax burden that reached a third of its national income. Today, 37 cents out of every dollar earned in this country is the tax collector's share. And yet our government continues to spend $17 million a day more than the government takes in. We haven't balanced our budget 28 out of the last 34 years. We've raised our debt limit three times in the last 12 months. And now our national debt is one and a half times bigger than all the combined debts of all the nations of the world. We have $15 billion in gold in our treasury. We don't own an ounce. Foreign dollar claims are $27.3 billion. And we've just had announced that the dollar of 1939 will now purchase 45 cents in its total value. There then were competing visions of what America should be. A nation oriented toward the public sector or to the private one. A nation where the state took center stage or the marketplace did. A nation in which progress and greatness were determined by the reach of government or by its limitations. It was, in a way, an argument as old as the Republic itself. The battle over federal authority versus states' rights, over Wall Street versus Main Street, over North versus South, over agrarian versus urban. No matter the era, certain tensions recurred, and those tensions shaped our common course. And there's been a common denominator to our finest hours, a basic agreement, if not on what to do about the problems that face us, at least on what those problems were. In long and consequential periods of our history, we the people have not acceded to a common understanding of reality. On race in particular, and on the rights of women, Americans have lived in competing universes. Yet when things have worked, in the 1930s and 1940s with the challenges of depression and war, and in the 1950s through the mid-1960s on the crisis of the Cold War, on the need for a global role, for racial justice and for better education, there was something approaching a consensus of fact in observing issues, even if we disagreed, virulently and sometimes violently, on how to address those issues. It was a real struggle, ideological struggle, and I think that that was part of what was going on. This is Sean Wilentz, a Princeton University professor and American historian. In the 60s, there were at least two things, major things going on. I mean, one was the Cold War and the contest of ideologies and the contest of ideas behind those ideologies and testing systems. And I think that Americans were thinking very much about you know, appeals to fact and reason off of that great contest. There was also a great revolution underway in the United States. You know, a great revolution was at hand, and you had different takes on all of that, obviously, but there was a real contest, a real contest over ideas, a real contest over what, you know, we the people meant, over what the basic fundamental ideals of America were about. They were being fought over in large measure as a result of the rise of the Civil Rights Movement. So I think that people were arguing about real things then in a way that even though reality is very much with us still, we seem not to be now. The flight from fact has been profound and widespread. This isn't just QAnon. 
it isn't just a fringe. A majority of Republicans in America believe, or say they believe, that the 2020 election was stolen. There are assorted right-wing narratives that ricochet around the conservative ecosystem. The latest is that Joe Biden's climate plan is going to ban hamburgers. These stories, these lies, are rooted in American history, but have been exacerbated and accelerated by the deepening sense of victimhood on the right, a sense that the world is arrayed against them, their churches, their politics, and their culture. Once upon a time in American society, white men and white Christian men sort of ran the show. They ran the private sector, they ran government. If not a particular sectarian view, there was sort of a default of non-denominational Christianity that was the semi-official religion. This is Jennifer Rubin, columnist for The Washington Post. And over time, that has eroded to the point where less than 50% of people identify with any religion. And of course, we have seen diminishment as a percentage of the population of whites. And they have felt this slippage, this alienation, which some of them talk about quite candidly and in quite racialist terms, that they feel a sense of loss. You're very rude. It's not about you. Not about Get out of my country. Get out. They're no longer on top. I believe that the voice of Christians is trying to be silenced. Things aren't the way they used to be. It does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. I hardly recognize the country, you hear people like Laura Ingram say. And Trump, I think, played into that perfectly, the way other right-wing nationalists around the world have played into, which is, you are a victim. It's this sense of victimhood that warps perceptions of reality. A mask isn't seen as a public health measure. It's seen as a gag. Maskless shopping is for people that believe in freedom over fear. A vote against their candidate isn't a legitimate vote. It's fraudulent. I want to thank the American people for their tremendous support. Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight. And uh, a very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people. And we won't stand for it. We will not stand for it. I believe the case can be made, and we will make it here, that facts have met a gloomier fate at the hands of the right than of the left. This may not always be true. There's an ebb and a flow to human events. In Shakespearean terms, there's a tide in the affairs of men. But as Richard Nixon might say, it would be wrong to ascribe the same level of ideologically driven resistance to inconvenient reality to the left of American politics today. And so this series focuses on the rise of what Richard Hofstetter called the paranoid style in American politics within the conservative ranks once led by Nixon and by Reagan. Imperfect men to say the very, very least but men who were more or less grounded in reality. Now, if you're a liberal, you're probably shaking your head at such an assertion, but stick with us for our episodes. Engage the arguments and see what you think at the end. For light can neither emanate from nor enter into a closed mind, even yours. 
for we are indisputably in a crisis of fact. Our press secretary gave alternative facts to that, but the point remains. Alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. There's a long litany of praise from Dr. Fauci, and you're referencing something he allegedly told Bob Woodward. It's, it's on tape. It's on tape, Kayla. No, Anna, to Anna, come Anna, to these the, rallies. Everybody, to his, Anna, you're he's, misstating yes, it. We have video. Let, let me show you the video from his campaign rallies, guys. Let's play well, it. Was this a positive presentation of what America is? I mean, I've never seen Washington, D.C. so militarized. Apparently, Biden had his own security police. And then I've never seen so many fences and so many walls. Trump didn't have any of this. You are fake news. You're very fake news. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast you heard it here last the roots of such remarks can be traced in part to october 1964 an arbitrary date i know but we have to begin somewhere in the same month reagan spoke to the country for goldwater there were other voices in America. Voices tinged with fear, with disenchantment, with grievance, that the world of which Kennedy and Johnson and Reagan spoke was not their world, that the vision of which Kennedy and Johnson and Reagan spoke was not their vision, that even the foundation and the frame in which Kennedy and Johnson and Reagan spoke and thought and sought to govern was not their foundation or frame. Kennedy and Johnson and Reagan and in a general sense, the prevailing political culture of America six decades ago, were working within a vernacular where reality was taken more or less for granted. Facts were facts. There was poverty, and there was hunger, and there was disease. There was a Cold War to be fought and won. We the people could disagree on the means undertaken to these ends, but the ends themselves the ambient evidence of our eyes and of our ears and of our minds, were not really in question. So let us begin in that distant, but not all that distant, autumn of 64. The historian Richard Hofstetter wrote a piece in the October issue of Harper's Magazine. In it he said, But the modern right wing feels dispossessed. America has been largely taken away from them and their kind, though they are determined to try to repossess it and to prevent the final destructive act of subversion. The old American virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals. The old competitive capitalism has been gradually undermined by socialistic and communistic schemers. The old national security and independence have been destroyed by treasonous plots, having as their most powerful agents not merely outsiders and foreigners as of old, but major statesmen who are at the very centers of American power. Their predecessors had discovered conspiracies. The modern radical right finds conspiracy to be betrayal from on high. Not every conservative felt this way. William F. Buckley Jr., who had founded National Review in 1955, savored debate and argument, not agitprop and denunciation. What makes you think your program won't do the opposite? 
You, you you're begging the you, whole you, question. You objected you're, to my plan in its original formulation. I agree with part you're, of your diagnosis, yes. but your solution is like telling the man who has a hangover that more of the hair of the dog that bit you is a way to get rid of it. Why should that follow? Because if, in fact, we could, over a period of 20 or 30 years, reawaken in American citizens uh, a sense of personal obligation, might it not... You can disagree with the conservatism of a Buckley or a Reagan. I know I do. They weren't forces for the kinds of racial progress and wider opportunity that so many Americans fought for, and should still. But they weren't autocrats. They weren't totalitarians. They weren't cultists. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Hyperbolic? Absolutely. It was a campaign speech. This is also the man who, when he became governor of California two years later, spoke of getting 60% of what you wanted and then fighting for the other 40% another day. He'd been a union negotiator for the Screen Actors Guild and knew about give and take, about compromise, about reality. Joe McCarthy, for one, did not. In the Red Scare of the 1950s, McCarthy had built a national reputation on lies and half-truths, arguing that there were unseen forces controlling men such as Harry Truman, whom Reagan had campaigned for. McCarthy said then, How can we account for our present situation unless we believe that men high in this government are concerting to deliver us to disaster? This must be the product of a great conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous such venture in the history of man. A conspiracy of infamy so black that when it is finally exposed, its principles shall be forever deserving of the maledictions of all honest men. Hofstetter saw what was happening. His main topic in the Harper's essay was the John Birch Society, a far right-wing anti-communist group that believed Truman, George Marshall, and even Dwight Eisenhower were agents of the Soviet Union. Here is Sean Wilentz again. I mean, if individual paranoia is about feelings of individual persecution, that the world is out to get you, the paranoid style in, in politics is that the whole country is being targeted by some unseen, dark, hidden forces out there. Hofstadter made it very clear that the paranoia is not simply something that appears among bad causes, as it were, causes that he disagreed with. He crops up all across the political spectrum, left and right. But he noticed, at least when he was writing in the middle of the 1960s, that it seemed to be um, something that was coming up particularly on the right, and he identified it especially with the, you know, the movement behind Barry Goldwater, in which, you know, with the John Birch Society and so forth, to a certain extent with going back to McCarthy, there was this obsession with, you know, conspiracies out there that were so vast, so immense, as Joe McCarthy put it, the darkest in all human history. Hofstadter called it pseudo-conservative. That is to say, it's not conservative in any identifiable way. It's not the conservatism of, I don't know, Edmund Burke. It's not the conservatism even of Warren G. Harding or Calvin Coolidge. It's a different kind of conservatism, and it's a fact it's a radical conservatism. 
It was factless and fringe, but not so fringe that a young Republican in Houston's Harris County GOP wasn't forced to read the Birchers out of the party before they took it over. And George Herbert Walker Bush never forgot the lesson that extremism was bad for governance. Decades later, in the White House, President Bush denounced the Klansman David Duke, who was seeking office in Louisiana as a Republican. I could not possibly uh, support David Duke because of the racism and because of the uh, very recent statements that are very troubling in terms of bigotry and, and all of this. We can never in any way support uh, David Duke for the reasons I gave. And uh, so uh, please don't try to draw me into a runoff in that state. I'm not going to be so drawn. By 2017, when Donald Trump was president, David Duke said, This represents a turning point for the people of this country. We are determined to take our country back. We're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for Donald Trump, because he said he's going to take our country back. And that's what we got to do. The fact of this, the unqualified support of a Klansman for an incumbent president, never really affected that president's standing with his base. A base that, as Kellyanne Conway said, was more interested in alternative facts than in the facts of the matter. How did we get to such a point? A point where fear has conquered facts. And to borrow Ronald Reagan's imagery, a point that risks sentencing the nation to eons of darkness, unless and until we can prove that the Gospel of John had it right when it declared that we shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. This season on Fate of Fact. Join us on a historical journey into the right wing's flight from reality to fantasy. A complex story about politics, identity, race, power, and America itself. Thank you for listening to Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio, created and executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Fate of Fact was written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil. Additional production, engineering, and research support by Paige Heimson, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Ian Mont. Our theme song is Remember Me as a Time of Day by Explosions in the Sky. Artwork by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and PR support by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. 
Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.